Happy New Year, everyone. It's good to see you today. Glad you joined us for the first Sunday of the new year. You can see from the um, image behind me that uh, this year marks our 30th anniversary as a church. Now, we, we tend to live as individuals kind of with our heads down. We call it the grind because we're kind of head down, moving forward, just kind of going from one day to the next, one event to the next. But whenever we come across birthdays or anniversaries or New Year's Days like we just celebrated this week, there really are opportunities for us to pause just for a moment and lift our gaze up beyond just the moment. And so as we mark our 30th anniversary as a church, we're going we're gonna to do that. We're going to pause and we're going to take the next few weeks to uh, look back uh, at what God has done here in gratitude and then look forward with uh, some renewed focus about what we're praying that God might do uh, in the future through this as a church. Now, if you're new to Seabreeze, uh, I, couldn't, I couldn't think of a better time uh, for you to, to begin to visit. I think this will give you a real understanding of who we are, what we're about, and uh, give you a chance to decide whether this is something that you think God wants you to be a part of. And if you've been around for a while, I think this will be uh, pretty encouraging and hopefully motivating uh, to you as well. In Isaiah 55, 1 through 2, uh, we read this, listen to me, you who pursue righteousness and who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were cut and to the quarry from which you were hewn. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, who gave you birth. Now, this was written to the nation of Israel at a key point in their history. And it's a call, really, to, to look further back than they were looking, to look back all the way to the beginning. In this case, it would have been 1,200 years back to the very beginning of the nation of Israel. And the reason this is a call to do that is because we're not just individuals that just suddenly appeared on the scene of human history. We all have a future or all have a past that, that we've come from. And if we're going to understand what we're to do in the future, we really need to understand what's happened in the past and where we come from. If we don't understand our past, we really get lost as we move into our future. And so as I began to think about how to describe the 30 years that God has granted here at Seabreeze, I thought, you know, it's really not enough for us just to look back 30 years. We, we need to look back further than that. Now, next week, I'm going to look back at our 30 years and talk about some of the themes of what God has done here at Seabreeze in the past 30 years. But today, we're going we're to take a further look back. We're, we have been hewn from a quarry, and we have been cut from a rock that is much, much older than just 30 years. We are part of something that is much, much bigger than just this particular church and what you see going on here. And as I said, if we don't understand that history or if we forget that history, then we really lose our, our way as we move into the future. Now, there are two parts to our past. There is the quarry part and there's the rock part. We're going to look at these in turn. First of all, the quarry, the quarry of God's glory. All of us come out of this quarry out of the quarry of God's glory. Let me explain what I mean by that. A quarry is the location where the stone or the rock that is being used to build comes from. I want to show you a picture of a marble quarry in Spain. This is pretty amazing. A lot of beautiful white marble ready to be quarried and used in construction. Now, why not just dig up the rocks in your backyard and use that to build with? Well, there's, there's two reasons why you wouldn't want to do that. One is I don't know about your backyard, but the rocks in my backyard are not near as beautiful as this white marble. And the second problem is the, the composition of backyard rock is far inferior to what comes out of quarries like this. And the quarry that you get the rock from 
to build with will determine what you can build, what you're trying to build. I mean, how strong does the, the rock need to be and how beautiful do you want it to appear? And if you want white marble, you're not going to find that just lying around anywhere. You're going to have to go to the place where the quarry is, where the rock is. So what is the quarry that's being referred to here in this metaphor related to the history of Israel? What is the quarry from which the nation of Israel was hewn? Well, it's the same quarry that every nation comes from, the quarry of humanity, of humankind. You, you can't build a nation from the quarry of animals or from the quarry of plants. You, it takes people to build a nation. And it turns out that people are the most amazing of all the quarries that God has established in this world. The most amazing material comes out of the quarry of humanity. And that's because unlike all of the other quarries, in particular all of the other living things here on earth, we build and create entirely new things. We're like living stones that don't just stay in place. You know, animals and plants are fairly predictable. They, they move, they grow, but in predictable ways, but not us. We are far from predictable. You can never really be sure what we're going to do or what inventions or new ideas are going to pop into our minds and begin to take shape in reality. I read an article this week about some of the new technology that's uh, going to be coming out in 2018. And as I read that, I thought, hey, this is amazing, some of the stuff. If they really pull this off, who would have ever thought? I mean, even what we're using right now would, would really be a part of our life. And it's only out of the quarry of humankind that amazing things that no one had ever heard of or imagined before begin to take shape and begin to form. Now, why did God create such an amazing quarry? Why did God create humankind? Well, it was for the sake of glory. If you've ever walked the grounds of the Getty Museum just north of here in Los Angeles, uh, you've marveled at what was built there. And if you've done that, you know what glory is. That's what you experienced. Glory is a head-turning display of, of wonder and, and beauty. And that's why you can't just build a place like the Getty out of any old rock. I mean, for the Getty, for the sake of glory, the stone that built the Getty Museum had to come from a quarry all the way outside of Rome, Italy. And in a similar way, in order to increase glory here on earth, God created us in his image. He established the quarry of humanity. And so we are the quarry of God's glory. Now, there are other parts of God's creation that reflect beauty and wonder, but we are at the top of the glory in this world. We are unique in our ability to create beauty. But the glory that God established in humanity became tarnished. It became tarnished by our own sin. Our decision to not submit to God as the builder and kind of build our own stuff. A great description of the impact of this is found in the book of Romans in chapter 1, and just a couple of verses that I think really highlight what this means for us as humankind. It says this in verse 21, For although they knew God, speaking of humanity, they neither glorified Him, there's that word glory, they didn't glorify Him as God or give thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile. It just kind of went around in circles, and their foolish hearts were darkened. In other words, here's another description of it just a few verses later. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. So what occurred is humanity used the freedom that had been given 
to break with God and enhance their own glory, not His. So now instead of worshiping the Creator, we now worship something else that's been created. Now, we don't bow down physically now and worship anything that you can see, but if you look at the way we organize our lives and the way we structure our time and the way we handle our finances and what we talk about, you can tell that we bow before this or that or something else that's a creation of God, not God himself. And so in doing so, all of humanity did this. We've lost connection with God, the master builder, and we've now become just individual stones cut from the quarry of humanity. We are beautiful in our own right because we are made in the image of God, but we are nothing like what we could be together, constructed in a way that God wants to put us together. And so now what has happened throughout the flow of human history is everyone is out to become the most amazing stone they can be, really the most amazing statue they can be, rather than part of what God is building. And the result has not been amazing beauty through the flow of human history. There are a handful of standout statues and stones in the the past of human history. But the result really of this tainting of sin has been a dividing of humanity. And we have become more and more like single grains of sand in the flow of human history, forgotten and swept away in the waves of time. And we've become more and more divided And things have gotten darker and darker as we have gotten smaller and smaller. And that brings us to the rock part of our history. And that's the rock of God's salvation. This is how God responded to the tainting of the quarry of humanity by sin. You know, the quarry that the nation of Israel came from, as I said, was humanity, like every nation. And the rock was Abraham and his wife, Sarah. They were the individuals that God cut out of the quarry of humanity to start the nation. And the purpose was to call a people back to himself, to build a nation, to build a people again who would seek him, seek his glory and pursue righteousness, pursue what is doing what what is right before God, rather than just their own glory. But when God cut Abraham and his wife Sarah out of the quarry of humanity, He had more in mind than just building a nation of good and moral people. And the reason is because sin had ruined the quarry. It had weakened humanity. It had put veins of sin into the the bedrock of us as humanity. And what that meant is a righteous nation really could never be built on a human foundation. We're just too weak in order to build the right kind of lives before God. Every year at this time, we read articles about New Year's resolutions. I mean, that's kind of the the template for the first week of the new year. Lots of articles about resolutions. And the storylines vary, but the theme is pretty much the same. What's the theme? All of your resolutions are doomed to fail. That's pretty much what's behind most of the stories I read this week. I mean, it's just a matter of time. And we're given percentages based on the surveys of the last year and the year before, maybe. And here's what percentages of people make resolutions, and here's what percentage of them fail, and here's about the date by which you're going to crash and burn on your resolutions. And that's kind of the the way the storyline goes. And then usually it ends with kind of some suggestions of what the experts say about how you can make resolutions that that might last longer than the average. But the problem 
with resolutions is never the resolution. It's with us, the resolver. We seem to have lost the ability to, to resolve our way to change. We, we can't just simply resolve to be better people and automatically become better people. We, we have lost a measure of our freedom, particularly the freedom to do what is right. Now, if you resolve to do something wrong this year, you're going to have no problem filling that resolution out. But if you decide to, to really make some significant changes for the better in your life, you're, you're going to be in for a struggle because that's an uphill grade. That, that's going to be a challenge. We've lost some of the freedom, particularly to do what is right. So what that means is anything built on a human foundation will eventually darken, and the taint of sin will begin to be evident. And that's what happened to the nation of Israel that was cut out of the core of humanity with the rock of Abraham and Sarah, the first of that nation. Now, Abraham and Sarah were good rocks, but like us, they were only human. But out of that nation, God cut a different kind of rock, born into the quarry of humanity, cut out of that quarry, but from heaven. He was God in flesh, the one who's referred to as the rock of our salvation. He was Jesus Christ. And that began to change significantly what could come out of the quarry of humanity. It's described very clearly in Ephesians 2, the effect that this rock of salvation has on the flow of human history. Let me just read a few of the verses. Verse 13, it says, Now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away, you've been abandoned your, on your individual grain of sand pursuit. You were once far away, you've been brought near through the blood of Christ. So the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross paid the price of our sin, and it can now remove the taint of that sin. But the impact of that saving act, that offer of salvation, is not just so that we can now be polished up as individual statues and shine in all of our greatness. No, God had something much bigger in mind than just changing you or changing me as individuals. The purpose of salvation isn't just to clean us up so that we can shine. It's to build something far more amazing than any one of us. And it describes what that structure is. In the verses that follow, verses 19 through 20, say this, Consequently, you are no longer foreign, foreigners and aliens. You're not just individuals out there adrift. You're now fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. You're part of something. Built on the, and here's the rock imagery, the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as what? The chief cornerstone. So Jesus is the rock of salvation, but he's not just a solitary, boulder kind of rock that we can now stand on. A lot of times people think that this is really what Jesus came to do, is to be the rock that I personally stand on. That is partly true, but that's not even close to all that Jesus came to do. He is the chief cornerstone in a foundation, in a foundation that's made up of what God has done and said through the apostles, that's the New Testament portion of the Bible, and the prophets, that's the Old Testament portion of the Bible. Now, you don't lay a foundation over the course of millennia and then send your own son to take on a human body and become the cornerstone on that foundation unless you intend to build something on it. 
Now, if you're driving by a, a site and you notice that ground has been cleared and a foundation has been laid, you know automatically they're getting ready to build something there. And usually there's a picture of what they're going to build. You don't clear the ground, you don't lay the foundation unless you're going to build. This is what God was doing through history. It began by cutting out a nation from the quarry of humanity. And then the cornerstone was put in place when Jesus Christ came and gave his life on the cross and rose again. So what is it that is being built on this amazingly expensive and long-term foundation? What is it that's being built on this? Where is history going? Well, what's being built on this is the church. Jesus made this very clear in Matthew 16, verse 18. He was talking to Peter, and he said, I tell you that you are Peter. And Peter was one of the top disciples, and in a great twist of irony, which God obviously planned, the name Peter means rock. He says, and on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades, the power of everything that is evil, the enemy and all of the demonic horde, will not be able to stand against it. They won't overcome it. Now, to be clear, Peter is not the cornerstone of the church. Jesus is. But Peter was the first of many who would be part of the church, just like Abraham was the first of many in the nation of Israel. Now, if you were to ask a Jewish person to point to the single most important event in history, they would probably point to Mount Sinai when God gave the Ten Commandments to Moses. I mean, that marked two significant things. It marked, first of all, the the freedom from slavery in Egypt, and it marked God giving them the law that that was the, the law for this nation. The Ten Commandments are just kind of at the centerpiece of this. But if you were to ask God to point to the single most important event in all of history, where history is going, he would point to the church. And the comparison between these two great acts of God in history are, are lined up in Hebrews chapter 12 in the New Testament. And let me just show you how these compare. Here's what it says in verse 18 through 19. This is first talking about the Mount Sinai moment. It says, you have not come to a mountain that can be touched. That's Mount Sinai and is burning with fire. You know, when God was given the Ten Commandments, there was all kinds of fire and volcanic activity that God was bringing to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast. You know, this was some of the pageantry that was going on when God met with Israel at that mountain. Or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken. When God began to speak, he began to speak directly to the nation of Israel from that mountain. And apparently it was such a terrible and awful and fear-inducing voice that the power of it was so overwhelming that people fell on their faces and begged for God to stop talking because they thought they were going to die. So they sent Moses up to receive the rest of God's command. And what's saying is to people 2,000 years ago when this was written is you weren't there for that. So you can't go to that mountain. You can go there and touch it. We can go there and touch it now, but it's not doing what it was doing then, and God's not talking like he was then out of that mountain. You, you weren't there for that moment in history. You missed that. And then down in verse 22 through 23, the, the next few verses describe a little more of what was going on at Mount Sinai. But then a very important but occurs in verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion. That's the mountain of God. To the heavenly Jerusalem. 
not the physical Jerusalem that you can touch, to the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. Well, what in the world is this? To the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. So the mountain that's mentioned in the first segment is Mount Sinai, where the Ten Commandments were given. And obviously, the importance of Mount Sinai in that moment would have been hard to miss if you were there. I mean, with all the fire and the storms and the trumpet blasts and the booming voice of God, that would have been hard to miss. But the point that's being made here in this comparison is you're not standing before something as insignificant as that mountain at that time. You're standing before something much more significant. You're standing before the biggest thing that God has ever done. Not, not fire and booming voice from heaven, but you are standing before the church of the firstborn. Who's the firstborn? That's Jesus Christ. He was the first one ever born, first one ever carved from the quarry of humanity to conquer death. The first one to live a life without a single vein of sin. And the church, well, the church is the fascination of heaven. It's the cause for the angels of heaven to gather in joyful assembly and look on in awe and joy and pageantry. And you see this theme throughout the New Testament. Those who have gone on before us peer over the edge of heaven, and what do they stare at? The church. The angels gather, and what do they wonder at? The church. The prophets that have come before, what is their attention focused on in heaven? The church. Now just imagine if you were interviewing, if you could interview somebody who was there when God gave the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai, but they slept through it. I mean, what would you say? Wait, let me get this straight. God was talking, and the trumpets were blowing, and volcanic fire was spewing from the mountain, and you were asleep in your tent? How was that even possible? Well, you know, it was a really long week, and I was really tired, and Maybe it was the wine I drank. I don't know. But I, I, I woke up and people were saying, you wouldn't believe what happened. I'd miss the whole thing. Oh, what a miss. How could you miss something that important? But I think the even bigger shock will be what's going on now. You, you mean you missed the church? You were alive when the church was growing and multiplying throughout the world and, and you you, you leveraged your life to do something entirely different? You, you didn't become a part of a church. You, you didn't help that church grow. You, you didn't give to that church. You didn't help new churches get started. How, how, could, how could you miss that? And I think there will be lots of excuses that sound really rational right now. I think a lot of them will revolve around scheduling. It's like, wow, I'm just really busy. But if you were there for Mount Sinai, how could you ever say, yeah, it was a busy day and I missed the voice, the booming voice of God? No, 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 no. That Listen to the booming voice of God. I mean, the way our culture is right now is it, it used to make accommodations for church, but boy, the culture doesn't make any accommodation for church now. So what that means is those of us that really want to be a part of church, whether we work in one like I do or 
like many of you, you do not, you've got to make a lot of sacrifices. And your kids have got to make sacrifices if this is going to be a big deal. Or another excuse might be, well, I I got upset with someone in the church, and we had a conflict, and we we never got it worked out. And so I kind of left mad, and then I kind of stayed mad, and before I knew it, 10 years had gone by, and I hadn't been a part of the church. Whatever the excuses will be, the point from the view of heaven and the view of eternal would be, but you, you missed out on the most significant thing God has ever done. What a mess. I mean, I personally, I would love to have been there to see Mount Sinai. I know it sounds like it, the voice of God was really terrifying. But maybe just five minutes, just a five-minute window of the booming voice of God, I, I would love to have seen that. But in God's providence, I get to be here now. And I'll, I'll be forever grateful and amazed that I get to be alive at this time, to be a part of the thing that God has been laying the foundation of for millennia and has paid the precious price of his own son to lay the cornerstone for. I get to put my time and my money and my hand to help in that? That's what a gift. And that brings us to the the third part, and that is the building part. The building of God's church. You know, after the chief cornerstone is laid, the building is built. What does that look like? Well, in the very next verses, after the chief cornerstone statement in Ephesians 2, we read this in verse 21. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So notice the building really occurs on two fronts. It's describing kind of two areas of building that go on on top of this foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ as a cornerstone. The first part is the visible part. The whole building, it says, is joined together. It's built. This is the, really the organization part that's required whenever people join together to accomplish anything. And then there's the you and the me part. You too are being built. Now what's interesting about this is it's in the process of working together. Notice the word together. It's as we work together on the larger visible church project that we grow as individuals. Most people miss this. They think, you know, if if I'm really going to grow as a Christian, uh, it's pretty much me standing on Christ and as an individual just growing, really focusing on me. That's not how you grow. It's as you team together with other people in a church and you begin to work on this larger church project. You know what happens? You grow as you work Together, not as an individual trying to polish the stone that is you. No, it's as you submit the stone that is you to link together with other people on this larger church project. That's how you grow. So the first kind of building is visible. That's what you can see. I mean, you can see a gathering like this. You know, when we gather on Sundays, that's visible. That requires organization structure. I mean, we have to tell you what time to show up. That's, that's organization. We can't just say, well, just drive by and see if we're meeting. You may get lucky. No, 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 8.30, 10 o'clock. 
1130. If you come here at 2 o'clock, enjoy the parking lot, but we're not here. You know, so we got to organize, decide when are we going to meet. You can see the other things we do beyond Sunday morning. I mean, we work to help repair some of the mobile homes at the senior park just down the street on Gothard. Whenever we show up to do that on a particular time, you can see that. The people in that community can see us do that. If you were here yesterday morning for upper basketball, you can see the, the basketball league that we have organized and put together to help reach out into this community. You can see these kinds of things. You can see the organization. But the second kind of building, you can't see as well. You, know, you can't see me grow. I can't see you grow. Maybe over time, if I know you really well, you know me really well, we can see some evidence. But I can't say, hey, let's get together at, at 9 o'clock tomorrow, and I'm going to look into your eyes and see if you grew or not. And you look into mine and see if I grew or not. Uh, I don't know. You guys look great. I don't know if you're doing bad or good just by looking at you. You can't see those kinds of things. We can't see the Holy Spirit at work inside the life of an individual building and growing them in Christ. Now, the visible part of the church is called the local church. And that's because in order to see it, there has to be a locality. There has to be a time and a place. So Seabreeze is a local church. We have an address. You know, of the 109 times church is mentioned in the New Testament, 98 of those 109 times, it's talking about the local church the visible church that showed up in a particular location. In fact, much of the New Testament are letters written to local churches. Now, I don't know if you write letters anymore, but what's the key part of writing a letter? You've got to have an address. It's got to go somewhere. The letters of the New Testament went to the church in Rome. It went to someone somewhere in Rome. The church in Ephesus, the church in Thessalonica, the church in Corinth. This is the majority of the kind of church that's talked about in the New Testament, the visible church. But increasingly, people are kind of souring on this visible, organized, local church thing. You know, on a recent flight, I got talking with a guy that was sitting next to me. Next to me and, you know, most flights now, people just kind of air into their music or books, and, which is fine. I'm, I'm an introvert, so I'm, I'm okay with that. But we got talking. And... Um, I talked about what he did as long as I can because I know when the conversation turns to what I do, it, I never know what, how it's going to go. It just gets interesting from that point. So eventually he turned it around and said, well, what do you do? And when I told him, he said something that I hear a whole lot these days. This is what he said. You know, I'm a very, very spiritual person, but I don't believe in organized religion. Now, I mean, you probably hear that a lot too. And when you hear that, it's like, well, that sounds logical. Fair enough. You're, you, you, you like God, you just don't like when we get together in His name, which I don't always like either, so I, I, I understand. But when you really think about it, it just, it's kind of a brush-off statement, like I don't want to talk about that stuff anymore, because it really doesn't make sense. I mean, what if He had told me, you know what, I'm a very, very financial person, but I don't believe in stock markets or accounting laws or currency or banks, what would I think? It's like, well, I don't know what you think a financial person means, but it doesn't sound like you're very serious about finances. Because anything that we're really serious about involves organization. That's one of the amazing things about the human quarry. 
It's when we organize and, and structure things together that we can accomplish something far more than we can ever do by ourselves. That's part of what makes us unique and amazing. We're not just herds roaming around eating stuff. We can organize to launch things that go to the, the moon. I mean, we're, we're pretty unique as we organize. And so anything we're serious about, we always organize. I mean, we have hospitals because we're serious about what? Health, medical care. If we said, you know what, it's when hospitals get organized that they get expensive, so let's, let's not do that. It's like, all right, well, we're just going to die younger then. No, no, we're serious about medical care. And I got someone to jury duty this week, which reminded me of, oh, that's another organization. <laughs> I mean, our criminal justice system, just think about all of the organization, all the structure involved in that. I mean, just the amount of laws that have been written. And then the criminal justice system around it to make sure those laws are enforced and they're interpreted and disputes are, are mitigated based on those laws and then consequences are brought to bear based on those laws. I mean, that's a lot of organization. Why? Well, there's probably no one in the world that's as serious about justice as this nation is. So we've got more organization than almost any other place. So why is it that so many are opposed to the local church? to the organized expression of God's people? Well, I think it's because the local church is not always that glorious in appearance. Now, how can that be? How could it be that based on the foundation that God has laid through the prophets and the apostles over millennia, and then based on the precious cornerstone of his own son, how could not that structure that comes out of that foundation be just the most amazing and glistening and shining piece of glory that this world has ever seen? Why isn't the entire world looking and saying, oh, is that a church? We've got to go. Why? Well, do you know why? It's because you're a part of it and because I'm a part of it. It's made up of people like you and me who... Well, in fairness, we are being built, but let's be honest, we are in no way a finished product, right? We don't glisten in the evening sun or the evening moon, do we? I mean, no, it's, we're just kind of normal people. We're growing, but we're not that amazing. And it's not only made up of people like us who really are trying to grow. It's also made up of people who have yet to ask Jesus to save them and to begin to build on him as their foundation. I mean, I don't know how many in this, but I, I know in just a gathering of this size. But there's a number of you that are just kind of checking this out and trying to figure this out, and we're so glad you're here. So anytime we gather visibly, we're going to have some people that aren't really convinced of this yet. And that's why we, I try to make this as understandable as possible so you can, for yourself, you know, get your mind going and figure out, you know, what do I think about this? So we've got people like you and me that are serious about this, but far from perfect, that make up the visible church. And we've got people who are just checking things out and They've yet to make a commitment, so they're probably not going to be doing even as well in righteousness as we are, maybe, but you know, there, there's going to be some problems there. And then it's also made up of people who are, who are what Jesus called wolves in sheep's clothing. What that means is they, on the outside, they sure look like Christians. They, they look like sheep, and they act like Christians. They, you know, they, they make the sounds, <laughs> but on the inside, they're, they're in it for themselves. What that means is they really have no interest in kind of building on this foundation. One of the key indicators is they're really not going to sacrifice that much. They're here to take, not really give. Now, they might give a while so that they can 
take more. And whenever they don't get their way or whenever they finally see an opportunity, they will do harm to get what they want. They have fangs. The problem is we can't see the fangs. All we can see is the wool that covers the fangs. And sometimes we just don't know that there's fangs there until there's blood on the ground and people have been hurt. Now, God can see the fangs. We can't. God can see into our hearts, and He knows who we are. But we often don't see until it's too late. And so the visible church, then, is just a mixed bag of flawed people doing the work of God, building this thing together. Now, the invisible view that God has of His church is called the universal church. This is the church made up of everyone who really is a follower of Christ. This is the church as God sees it, not as we see it. We see this, and we can't see inside everyone's hearts. We can see some evidence over time, but we can't see everything. But God sees the universal church. You know, it's kind of like, I don't know if you remember in the X-Men movies when the professor went into Cerebro and put that little helmet on. You know, here's a, here, we'll show you a picture of him here. Uh, there he is. Put the helmet on. And uh, he could see all, you know, the mutants from the humans. Now, if you've never seen an X-Men movie, just feel free to take a little break. I'll be back in a couple minutes, and we'll continue this. But he could see, the professor could see with that helmet, could see the benefit of what the world really was, who was mutant, who was human. This is kind of the way God sees the world now. He can really see inside a church like this. Everyone's sitting here. He can see, all right, where is everybody at? I can't. You can't. He can't. They all look the same to us. So what that means is bad things can and do occur in the local church. But God sees and he knows who really are his. And in the end, the visible and the invisible church, the local and the universal church, will merge and Christ will evaluate what's really been built. The invisible will become visible. It's described in 1 Corinthians 3, 11 through 13, that day is described. It says, For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. You know, there's, there's some people that are building on a foundation other than Jesus Christ and they're calling it church, but it ain't the church. You can only build the church on the foundation of Jesus Christ, who he claimed to be. But if you're building on that foundation, there's a lot of different ways you can build. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, Silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is. Because the day, the, the word day is capitalized because it's talking about judgment day, that day. The day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. You see, on the, on the foundation of Christ, all kinds of things are being built right now and have been built, visible things. But in the end, only what doesn't burn is going to survive. So let's just talk about this visible church, Seabreeze. You know, we spent a lot of money buying this land and building these buildings. But in the end, this is not the church. This, this is all going to burn. It's not going to survive eternity. So why do we do this? Well, the reason is simply to reach more people and grow more people. That's the gold. That's the silver. That's the costly stones that will last. 
You see, in the end, on that day, I think there will most likely be some very surprised people. When some very, maybe impressive churches that maybe gathered thousands and are, are just amazing will end up being kind of just big piles of straw. You know, they'll go over the grate and the fire will come up and the straw will be, oop, and here's what we got left. Now, I don't, I don't know which churches that'll be. It's not for me to evaluate whether a church is coming up with gold, silver, or straw. It is for me to evaluate whether this church is coming up with that. But not any, I don't, I don't know. I just know that it's really possible to build a lot of wood, hay, and straw that impresses a lot of people because we can't see beyond the wood, hay, and straw. And I think conversely, there's going to be a lot of churches, small churches probably, medium-sized churches, that almost nobody has ever heard of. The leaders of those churches almost never are famous. But those churches have mined a lot of gold and a lot of silver and a lot of precious stones. And if you look at the impact of those churches over time, you see the people whose lives have been changed. Well, that's a, that's a lot of precious stuff. So what you see here when you walk around this campus, when you look at these buildings, what you see here visibly is mining equipment. That's what this is. This is mining equipment. What I mean by that is this isn't the point. You know, if you've ever visited a mine and you're just ooh and all over the mining equipment, you're missing the point. The question is, oh, this is a silver mine? Are you guys coming up with some silver? No, we're just digging dirt. Well, that's a waste of money. You coming up with some gold? You, you, you got some diamonds out of this mine? If so, well, then the investment of mining equipment is well worth it. But this, this visible stuff is not the point. It's just a tool to help us reach more and more people with the good news of Jesus and to help build more people up in Christ. You know, if, if you come here on Saturday and you see all, of the, all that's going on with the basketball leagues, you know, that, that's just mining equipment. You know, we're, we're not into basketball for basketball's sake. That's to reach more people and to grow more people. Everything we do. But you, you need to understand what's mining equipment and what's silver and what's gold and what's precious stones. That's people. That's what we're after. So here at Seabreeze, we would love to see God use us as a church to mine even more silver and more gold and more diamonds that sparkle than we've already seen in the years to come. So that's why we work together. Visibly, we're organizing basketball leagues and doing kids' ministry and reaching out into our community in different ways. And, and you're reaching out to your neighbors and loving them and helping them and sharing truth with them. And we're, we're doing all of this. We're working for the precious stuff. And we're praying to that end. And one of my favorite prayers in the New Testament ends this way. Ephesians 3, 20 through 21. Now to him who's able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. And when I talk about what God's done here in the past 30 weeks, you, you will see in our story some of the things that God has done that huh, should not have happened. It's immeasurably more than anything we could have asked or imagined. According to our amazing power? No. To his power that's at work within us. Why? Well, to him be, there it is, glory 
In what? Us? No, the church. Us together. And in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So now we've come full circle. We're back to the reason for the rock core of humanity in the first place, to bring glory to God. And we do that not by becoming amazing individual statues of virtue, but by building the church on the foundation of Jesus Christ. This is the rock from which we have been cut. This is who we are. We're just one of the many, many, many local churches that have been throughout history and that will continue as long as God allows time to be before he wraps up history. We're only 30 years old, but we're part of something much older and much bigger than this. Next week, we're going to look at what has been built at this local church, what God has done. But before we look at that, we need to see the big picture. Let's pray. Father, it's so easy for us to, with our visible eyes, miss what really is important in this life. We'll wake up tomorrow morning and we'll check in with whatever sources of news we check in with and we'll begin to move towards the responsibilities of our day. And All kinds of things will loom large on the horizon of this moment in history. You know, what's going on in politics seems very significant. And what's happening in in business and the economy with the titans of industry, boy, that seems huge. Whatever the, the glistening stars are doing in their fame, well, that seems significant. But almost nobody thinks that the church really is to even be on that stage. But what you are doing in places like this is at the very center of what you're about. It is the single biggest move that you've ever made throughout all of history. It is the point to which history has been brought. Help us to see the significance of this and to make our decisions based on the importance of what you're doing through the church. We thank you for the 30 years that you've granted us. And we pray that you would help us to reach more and more people and grow more and more people in the years to come. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.